Hi, and welcome to the TSW podcast, providing insight from thought leaders, success stories, and practical mental and physical tips to help you on your journey to recovery with your host, Claire Hart. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the TSW podcast. I'm your host, Claire Hart. So lovely to be back with you guys. I um, must apologize because I've been on a bit of an unplanned hiatus. I think life has just ended up getting really busy again in a super positive way, um, which has kind of distracted me from all skin type stuff, which is, you know, a huge sign of healing in itself. So I'm really grateful for that. So yeah, I hope you are all doing really well. And as the weeks, months go past, life is starting to get back to normal for you guys as much as possible. Um, For you who are early on your healing journey, I hope you'll find some really great gems of wisdom today in the session with Julie Greenberg, which I'm going to release. I probably recorded this about three or four months ago, so um, massive apologies to Dr. Greenberg that it's taken me so long to get to this point. Lots of stuff has been happening. Uh, We're renovating our house here, which is really cool, but quite intensive. Um, I ran my first marathon. Um, That was in honour of my dad, who died last year. Um, and felt really like, really like a, a big step in kind of feeling like a different person, I suppose, like kind of acknowledging everything that had happened. And TSW is a huge part of that to have my fitness back and to run a marathon and just feel really badass, (laughs) for want of a better word. I feel um, really proud of myself and actually as I was running the marathon you know thinking about what I've been through with my skin um, and getting to this point where my health is back better than it's been before from a physical fitness perspective I just felt really empowered and I don't know if I hadn't been through TSW whether I would feel that or be as driven as I am now so you know I know we talk a lot on the podcast about everybody's perspective and everybody's life or how you view things how all of that changes on the other side I think that's an example for me of how far I've come like I never thought a marathon would be possible for me but having been through TSW you know things are within our grasp yeah I think we all set kind of like a I don't know like a, a protective layer around ourselves or thinking that's that's as far as I can go I can't step past that and actually TSW and getting through that, even when doctors or your family or friends are telling you not to and to keep using steroids to prove to yourself you can do it and get to the other side is so empowering and so much good stuff can come from that. So um, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. I've been on a couple of holidays um, and my skin's been incredible, like really enjoying the sun and the sea. Um, I've been going to the gym and for the first time ever not scratching in a gym session and I've done that my whole life like I would get sweaty and I would just rip my skin off and I don't do that anymore so and I'm sure that probably resonates with a lot of you where you know you just get hot and like the feeling of sweat on your skin just makes you go into a bit of a flare Um, yeah it's amazing to know that before when I was using steroids that would happen to me all the time and now it doesn't so you know just amazing learnings I had um, a fungal infection which thankfully Louise King spotted on me so I'm really grateful to Louise once again for helping me out on my journey Um, on my arms my chest also on my face Um, and it, it didn't look like normal fungal like pictures you see of of fungal it kind of looks quite round and raised edges mine wasn't like that there were some little patches that looked a tiny bit like that but it wasn't really um so I ended up going on hydroconazole I believe the name is um and I did pretty much two weeks on that um and now take it once a month just two tablets to keep it under control lots of dead sea salt baths um and I used just like an antifungal cream to spot patch little little areas um so that's cleared up 
Um, and I think that's why my skin is looking as good as it is now. It's still not 100% perfect. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, around my mouth, still some little dry areas. But that's exactly where I use Protopic for a really long period of time. So I wonder if there's a correlation there between why just around my mouth is taking longer to heal. And then I also had some allergy tests done. And lo and behold, I am extremely allergic to cats, horses, trees and grass. So all of the things that I have around me all the time in the countryside. So amazing win there. <laughs> um, so I've been recommended to go through some it's like immunotherapy type treatment where I believe what they do is give you a tiny little drop of these allergens underneath your tongue every day for like six months uh, to see if that helps calm your system down. Um, I haven't started that, but I keep you posted as and when I do. Um, in the interim, I'm just taking a lot of antihistamine, which probably isn't a great thing either. Um, but I guess the biggest symptom I have is we have this little cat with one eye that we got from the RSPCA. Um, and my breathing is really bad around him if I don't take antihistamine. And all my life, you know, I've been given asthma pumps and uh, now Montelukast which is like a tablet which is supposed to like stop any sort of asthma um, symptoms. But again, I kind of feel a bit like I'm, I shouldn't really be on these because actually it's allergies and I need to just get control of my body getting a bit too excited around allergies rather than using asthma medications all the time because it's kind of patching up the issue, right? And I know, you know, throughout all the podcasts we've spoken a lot around what is the root cause? What is the issue that's causing this? And how can I deal with that rather than taking more pharmaceuticals to cover over the impact? So we'll talk a lot about that with Julie Greenberg today. Um, so hopefully there'll be some great takeaways for you. Just a little bit on Julie. So I found out about Julie from Jennifer Fugo. Um, and I spoke to Jennifer probably, I think it was episode three of the podcast. If you haven't listened to that, go back, have a listen. She's absolutely fantastic and it has treated so many patients. Um, we've seen so many clients with TSW. So I really recommend listening to some of her recommendations. Um, and Julie was on um, Jennifer's podcast, The Healthy Skin Show, and talked around TSW, her experience with TSW patients and clients and some of the myths around TSW and licorice root and how some people in the community thought that could act as a, a steroid replacement um, and could cause bad effects. So she kind of did some myth busting around that, which was really helpful. And Julie is a licensed naturopathic doctor and a registered herbalist, and she works in the States. And she specializes in integrative dermatology. Her passion really is around um, natural skincare and in the way I was just talking, you know, is really passionate about the fact that a lot of the chronic skin diseases that we're seeing today can be healed by evidence-based alternative treatments. So instead of reaching for the pharmaceuticals, what else can we do to adjust and treat the root cause? So in the episode today, we talk about adrenal insufficiency, which I am absolutely fascinated. You know, not only are we dealing with vasodilation on a huge scale when you go through TSW, but also what is the impact to your adrenal glands and therefore cortisol dysregulation and how that impacts insomnia. We talk about uh, pH scale and bleach baths. We talk about staph aureus um, and um, staph infections. We touch a little bit on fungal infections, but only lightly. Um, and I'm hoping to get Jennifer back on the podcast to talk about fungal infections so that we can give you guys a little bit more detail around that, how to swap them, how to treat them, um, and how if you've been on immunosuppressants, you're actually a lot more um, susceptible to, to getting uh, fungal infections. Okay, I think that's everything I need to tell you guys before we kick off. Um, I want to give a massive shout out to Beth Davison. Um, she is a fellow TSW sufferer, um, well on her way to her journey to recovery, but she very kindly reached out to me and 
offered her professional services when it comes to editing and cleaning up the uh, sound on the podcast. So this first bit, Beth isn't helping with, but hopefully the actual um, podcast, you will see the difference. And yeah, Beth's going to be coming on and joining me for an episode. So we'll talk about her journey to recovery. Um, so that'd be really exciting. But thank you, Beth, for all of your help so far. Um, and the next episode that I will be launching next weekend on Sunday is with DJ Chloe Robinson. I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. She is incredible and hearing about her career and its trajectory at the moment, but also going through TSW and how she's managing that and her mindset um, is absolutely fascinating. And she's a really wonderful person to speak to. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Um, do reach out to Julie Greenberg, um, give her some love for giving us all of this amazing information. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Um, and if you have any special requests, any guests you'd like to see on or any topics you'd like covered, please do let me know. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. So, Julie, Dr. Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us on the TSW podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me, Claire. It's such an important issue. So, Dr. Greenberg, as a, a naturopathic doctor and registered herbalist, can you help us in the community sort of understand what does that mean? What does that encompass? And, and kind of what gets you really excited about your work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in the United States, and I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but in the U.S., uh, naturopathic doctors or uh, naturopathic physicians were licensed by state. So we have to attend four years of accredited medical school. And then depending on which state you're in, we have a different what's called scope of practice, which means uh, we can do different things. So for example, in Oregon and Washington, where I am licensed, we are considered primary care physicians. Uh, in California, where I'm also licensed, we're considered doctors. And then there's other states where we're not licensed at all. So it's a little complicated over here. And I know there's naturopathic doctors in other parts of the world. I, I don't know the, the kind of rules and regulations. Um, for registered herbalists, it means that we have done extensive training with herbs and um, we've applied and been accepted to have the registered herbalist status um, through a variety of proving our ability in that area. And so what's so exciting for me is that, you know, using herbs is part of naturopathic medicine. And I just feel like we have so much more flexibility and ability to get to the root cause with herbs. Pharmaceuticals can be wonderful. They can be life-saving. Sometimes they're absolutely needed. Uh, but I think our, our current use of pharmaceuticals as a crutch to treat symptoms is really a detriment to solving our chronic healthcare issues because when we treat supplements with pharmaceuticals, unfortunately, we end up often just creating more symptoms and then needing another pharmaceutical mm -hmm. to treat the new symptom and on and on and on. Whereas herbs are, you know, usually much more gentle. I can get to the root of the root cause of problems using herbs. And, and so my goal is to ultimately not have people on herbs for, and supplements forevermore. Um, and I think that's what's so exciting about herbs is, is being able to find and treat the root cause with them. Mm, absolutely. And I love that, um, particularly completely right. And the older I'm getting, the more I'm realizing if you take pharmaceuticals, very often you'll end up having the side effects that you then need to go and take another pharmaceutical for and you kind of want to step off that train as much as possible absolutely so um so dr greenberg i i found out about you via uh jennifer fugo's amazing podcast the healthy skin show um and she recommended that we have a, a conversation about tsw um but i'd love to find out how you first came across tsw um and what your experience has been to date yeah, I mean, I think I first came across it through patients, um, you know, eczema patients who the, something looked a little bit different. And then, um, you know, I feel like in the past few years, the the concept of TSW has really gotten out, you know, much more, both amongst um, consumers or, or patients as well as doctors. Um, and then we realize, like, oh, there's there's a common thread through all this story, and it is 
not just topical steroids. So I always say this is a horribly named condition because we call it TSW, topical steroid withdrawal, but it's much more than that. Uh, I would say a high percentage of my patients, the kickoff to TSW is being prescribed a course of oral steroids like prednisone. And that is kind of what the body says, you know, nope, too much, I'm done. But it's also more than just steroids, whether oral or topical, because there's drugs like protopic, which is like uh, tacrolimus, pimacrolinus, the calcineurin inhibitors, and um, eucrisa, which is a PDE4 inhibitor. Um, these, all of these drugs, um, you know, are immunosuppressives. They're, again, suppressing symptoms, and they can all be part of the TSW picture. And, and we're actually finding, unfortunately, that sometimes people who switch to protopic thinking they're doing the right thing, like, oh, I got to get off steroids, it can exacerbate and prolong TSW. Um, so, you know, luckily it's it's much more out there and I'm, um, a lot of people like Jennifer Fugo has a wonderful podcast, like you mentioned, The Healthy Skin Show. So if your listeners aren't aware of that, you should check her out. And I'm part of an organization called Learn Skin and it's a group of integrative practitioners, including um, conventional dermatologists, but who are really interested in integrative medicine and, um, you know, it's, it's discussed in the group and acknowledged within the group. So I, it's, it's certainly gaining more traction. That being said, you know, there's still a lot of conventional doctors who deny that it's a real condition. I think the pharmaceutical industry is going to deny it as long as they can because they don't want culpability for it. Um, but I do think we're moving in the right direction. And I believe um, in the US, our National Eczema Society even has information about TSW mm. on their website, which is a huge step forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think the final hurdle with all of that is, I, because we've seen it talked about in Parliament in the UK, we've seen um, you know the, the the health regulatory authority coming out with communications about it, but there's always this line which says, inappropriate use and um, using too frequently or too much. But I think historically, the people who are like me, who are now in the 40s and have been on these things for like 37 years, you know, doctors have just prescribed them and said, as soon as you see a flare up, you use it. So getting past that rare piece, getting through inappropriate use, I think for me, that's the next step in kind of, you know, really acknowledging that actually people have been using it as prescribed. And actually, it probably isn't rare at all. I think there's a lot of people who don't know that they've got it at the moment. I think you're right. And, and you know, it's a huge problem. Originally, when steroids came out, you know, that quote unquote appropriate use was, you know, maybe seven to 10 days. And then you were supposed to discontinue steroids. And honestly, if you're using a topical steroid for seven to 10 days, you're not going to get topical steroid withdrawal syndrome. So that that is an appropriate use. But what happened over time is that, you know, it, it, it wasn't working and there were no other tools in the toolbox of dermatologists. So we started going up the ladder and it was, well, let's use it more frequently. Let's use um, harsher steroids because a steroid is not a steroid. We, we talk about them like, oh, it's one drug, but there's classes from class um, seven to class one. And there's a huge difference. So class seven is, is the weakest and that's like hydrocortisone. Um, and even within that, there's there's different strengths of, of steroids. But class one is clobetazole, for example, and that's 600 times the strength of hydrocortisone. So if you put on one uh, application of clobetazole, that's like 600 applications of hydrocortisone. So, you know, it's it's hard to even know, well, what is appropriate use? Mm. Is, they're, they're so different. And we used to never prescribe some of these stronger steroids for like the face or thinner skinned areas or children. And that all changed. That's all being prescribed. Mm. So you're right. I mean, I don't think there's a real concept now of appropriate use. Yeah. And, um, you know, the eczema world is moving more towards the biologic drugs now, like Dupixin. And there's new drugs coming down the pipeline, like Jackstat inhibitors. And so I do think, I think dermatologists are, are reacting to this information as well as there's a lot of resistance that they're getting from patients and the parents of, you know, pediatric patients that they, people know, like, this can't be right. I don't want to be using steroids mm -hmm. like this, but 
unfortunately, we're kind of moving to these biologics now, which are systemic immunosuppressants. And you're not going to go into TSW on them, but there's a whole host of other problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of in your in your opinion, what is happening physiologically in the body as we go through TSW and how does that differ from what happens with eczema? Yes. So I'll start off by saying there is so much we really don't know about TSW still because as we discussed at the beginning, it is not acknowledged as a real condition in the medical community. And by that, I mean, there's no, uh, so in the States, we have things called ICD-10 codes, which is a diagnosis. There's no ICD-10 code for TSW, hence it doesn't officially exist. You can't diagnose and prescribe on it. And again, the pharmaceutical industry, it's not in their best interest to have it be a legitimate condition because now they're going to be legally liable for it. And that's going to reduce sales and open up lawsuits. And so what all of this means that there's not really dollars being spent to research the disease. And so your question is an excellent one. And I wish I could now start where I you know, you know usually start with conditions like eczema or psoriasis, spouting a bunch of, you know, cited research where we know here's the pathophysiology, here's what's happening in the body. But the truth is with TSW, it's really more questions than answers at this point because of that, because there's no research. That being said, there are certain things that we know are happening. Um, topically, these drugs are called vasoconstrictors. And what that means is that they constrict or make the blood vessels, you know, stay kind of closed. Um, when we stop doing that, when we've done that for a long time and then we pull them off, we get something called vasodilation, which is where the blood vessels are then pop open. And I liken it to if there's a heavy coil and you have to put all your weight on that coil to keep it down, that's what the steroid is doing and it's causing that vasoconstriction. And as soon as you let go of that coil, not only does the coil go back to its kind of normal state, it goes boing, right? And it will take all that stored energy and go up much higher than its steady state. And then it kind of goes up, down, up, down, up, down until it kind of works that energy out and goes back to its baseline. And, and it seems like the same thing is happening with our vessels where when you have long-term application of, of, let's say, topical steroids, it's causing this vasoconstriction, artificial vasoconstriction. And when you remove it, the blood vessels are kind of like that coil and they're like, now I can open and this blood flow in ensues and we get this kind of leaky tissue picture where it's that part of that oozing um, and it takes a long time to sort it out. The, the other piece that we really do know is happening, although it's still kind of denied within the medical community, is what we call like an HP access dysregulation. So when we think of cortisol, um, cortisol is mostly made in the adrenal glands, although there's now research that's showing that we do actually make cortisol in the skin. And cortisol is, of course, our stress hormone, and it's regulated uh, by our brain. And it is well known within the medical community that if you give somebody a long course of oral steroids like prednisone, you can kill them if you don't slowly what's called taper them. So you're at this kind of ongoing dose of prednisone, let's say 60 milligrams. If you're on it for a long amount of time, your, your adrenal glands basically will shut down because your body looks around and goes, wow, where's all this cortisol coming from? I don't know, but I don't really care. I don't need to make it. And the body has so many things to do, right? Think about it like a super busy person. And it's like, well, look, if someone's giving me cortisol, I'm just not going to make it. And I'm going to move on to the 75,000 other things I need to do. So it basically tells those adrenal glands, hey, shut down the factory. We're getting enough cortisol. You don't need to do this anymore. And the adrenal glands will shut down. And so if you pull somebody off an oral steroid who's been on it for a long time or long enough, you're going to put them into an adrenal crisis and, and it risks their life and it's medical malpractice. And there's no doctor in the world who doesn't know about steroid tapers. And they're going to tape you down on that oral steroid. For some reason, we've denied that this could possibly be happening with topical steroids, right? We've said, no, 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 that's just with oral steroids. And that's just not true. I mean, we're showing, 
like you said, somebody can be on it for 20 or 30 years. That's a lot of steroids. When you're talking about clobetazole versus hydrocortisone, that's a sledgehammer compared to, you know, a tiny little hammer. Um, and with, with skin with eczema, 100% of the time, it's broken skin. It's skin that it does not have an intact barrier. And so whatever you put on it, you're going to absorb a lot more into it. So there, there seems to be this HP access problem with cortisol. Although, again, it's kind of denied conventionally, but we, it has to be happening. We know it's happening. And I do, um, I do do tests on my TSW patients. It's a urinary cortisol test to try to see. And, you know, I think, again, it's this kind of up and down bouncing effect where I can see different things. I can see sometimes the cortisol is super high in my TSW patients, and sometimes it's really low. And so I need to kind of test and see what's happening with their cortisol in order to know like which herbs and supplements to properly support them with. Um, I used to think, well, it must just be high because the system is rebounding again, but it, you really do need to test because the adrenals need to work it out. Mm -hmm. um, same way as we talked about holding down that coil, it's, it kind of goes back and forth and up and down and, and mm. the HPA access needs to self-regulate. So those are some of the things that, you know, we know are going on. But I think the thing with TSW that we can never forget is that that underlying condition that got you there is still present and still needs to be cleaned up. So most of the time it's eczema and eczema, we do know what's going on. I find and treat the root cause of eczema by uh, treating the gut and then treating overgrowth of organisms on the skin, uh, which are usually Staph aureus, which is a bacteria, and Malassezia, which is a yeast. So we can never forget that we need to go back and treat all of this kind of underlying foundational problem. You're never going to clear the TSW without it, but TSW is a whole other beast, and we, we need research. We need acknowledgement within the pharmaceutical and medical community. And then we need research to really understand physiologically what is happening in the body of people so that we can support them better um, than just, you know, a lot of the guessing that we're doing now. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that was so much in there, <laughs> Jennifer. That was incredible. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to pick up on one point and then maybe cover some of the other ones as well as I go. So just coming back to the adrenal insufficiency um, or what's happening with the adrenal glands after so much cortisol. Um, one of the biggest symptoms that we're seeing in the community is insomnia and protracted insomnia, which, you know, obviously you're going through the physical side, which is horrendous enough. Um, but then when you can't sleep, so your skin's not healing and it just psychologically, it's really difficult to handle. Um, what, do you believe that is linked because of the adrenal impact? And are there any protocols that you think could be beneficial to support that sort of adrenal recovery. Yeah, so absolutely. And that is part of why I like to test because cortisol is what we call a diurnal hormone. That means that um, early in the morning, uh, when we're still sleeping, our cortisol needs to start rising. And then at some point, you know, even without an alarm, right, our body wakes up. It's morning, time to get up, whether it's sunlight, but the cortisol has, has been going up since maybe, you know, three or 4 AM. Then let's say you wake up at seven. Now it's time to go. So the cortisol is supposed to shoot up over the next two hours. And that's our get up and go hormone. It gets us going, but cortisol is supposed to start coming back down again in the afternoon. And what's going to start taking over in the evening is another hormone called melatonin. So cortisol needs to come back down to very low levels and the melatonin needs to come up and that's what's going to put us to sleep and give us that rest and repair overnight. And it's, I mean, you can't heal from any problem that you're having without proper sleep. So it is kind of a double whammy to TSW. So two things can be happening with the hormones. One, the cortisol could be remaining too high as they head into evening because that HPA dysregulation, it's not doing its normal rising and falling pattern. And the second is there could be a problem with melatonin production. And I actually have this, I'm about to review labs with a TSW patient this week where we just went and did this hormone testing. And indeed, she's actually low in the cortisol in the morning. She shoots up in the afternoon and stays high in the evening. And her melatonin is 
like super, super low. So for her, I'm going to have to give her some herbs and supplements to kind of calm the cortisol down in the evening and get it back down where it needs to be and give her a little bit of melatonin. I don't like to dose melatonin without confirming that it's low though, because it is a hormone. And I'm, I'm not sure about in the UK, but in the States, you, you can just pick up melatonin in the drugstore. I know in other countries it's regulated as a hormone and you can't just buy and self-dose. I, I don't think it is good to just start dosing melatonin if you don't know what's happening. Uh, but my, my patient this week whose labs just came in and we're going to review is, is a prime example of this problem. So it's a quarter, it can be a cortisol problem. It can be a melatonin problem. It can be both of them. Mm, fascinating. And you're so right that the, interestingly, the labs that you're seeing there or the example that you're giving, a lot of the community say you're tired in the morning. Like we sleep at like 4 a.m. to maybe 7 a.m. or maybe 6 a.m. But you would have spent the whole night awake and then finally you get to sleep just in that moment um, in the morning. Um, so that that perfectly aligns with what you're saying there. You also touched on staff there, which I am fascinated by because there is a big conversation around staff on exmaceous, I can't say that word, exmerish. Exematous. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, on our fragile broken skin, there's a conversation as well around having bleach baths to control it. Tell me your thoughts on kind of staff and, and eczema skin. Yeah, so I am anti-bleach baths for a couple reasons. Um, the first is, and we, we can talk about staff separately, but we know that the bleach in the concentration of the bath is not actually concentrated or strong enough to be antimicrobial, which means it's not killing off any bacteria. And, and honestly, that's a good thing because bleach is pretty toxic. It's why if you're doing cleaning, you wear gloves or you're going to burn your hands. Bleach is what is known as alkaline. It's very alkaline and bleach is not really good for us. So like, do I want to soak or do I want a child to soak in a substance that's pretty, you know, caustic and toxic, even at low levels? I'm going to, I'm going to go with a no on that answer. <laughs> But my other real problem with bleach baths is that I think it's counterproductive because I talk a lot in, in my talks about what the pH of skin should be. And let's, let's back up a little and talk about the scale, the pH scale. So pH is a scale of um, from zero to 14, and it's um, kind of ranking substances in terms of if they're acids or bases basic or alkaline is the same thing. So something that's at the low end of the scale, zero to like, you know, five or six are acids. Neutral is seven. And things that are alkaline or basic has a high pH. And examples of things, so anything with the word acid, stomach acid, battery acid, those are super, super acidic and, you know, can burn the skin. Um, but like urine and saliva are a pH of six, so slightly acidic. Blood and water are neutral at around a seven. And a lot of the things that are alkaline or basic are, are cleaning supplies. So bleach, oven cleaner, lye, baking soda, um, all of those things are, are highly alkaline or basic and, and they can burn us. The skin, interestingly enough, is acidic. It, we have something called the fatty acid mantle on the skin, which is a protective barrier. And so healthy skin should be from like a four to a five and a half. It's surprisingly acidic. And part of the problem in eczema is that the skin pH is off. It's definitely not acidic. And there's a whole host of problems that ensue from that. But if you're doing bleach baths, you're raising the pH even more to an alkaline state, even further away from a healthy place. So for me, there's nothing good about a bleach bath. And I'd rather have people add something like apple cider vinegar to a bath, which is acidic and antimicrobial and not caustic for you. So I, I am unequivocally anti-bleach baths. I don't think they're healthy, productive, and I think they're counterproductive, actually. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, what do you think about um, like magnesium salt baths? Do they change the pH of your skin? What are, what are your thoughts around those? You know what? I'm, it's a good question. I'm not sure what the pH of that would be. A lot of people find relief or you know, whether it's just a re relaxation factor of absorbing magnesium maybe before bed. Um, so you know, I think it's fine. I, 
it depends on where they are in TSW. I think there's folks in TSW who like being in the bath as their happy place. And if they could be a mermaid and sit in the bath all day, that, that would be the most comfortable for them. And then sometimes they can swing in the other direction and water burns and people with TSW, you know, even who are not doing like a no moisture therapy want to be nowhere near water. Mm. Um, and, and that can swing depending on where you're at in it. But I think if people are, you know, feeling relief in a magnesium bath, I, I think that anything that provides relief like that is fine. Great. Okay. So let's come back to that staff question. So what are your thoughts around staff and sort of killing off staff if we can for our skin? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. First thing, when we say staff, I mean, most of us are referring to a specific organism known as a staph aureus or staphylococcus aureus. And that's kind of the bad guy staph. There's lots of staphylococcus or staph uh, bacteria. There's, for example, staph epidermidis, which is known as kind of a good guy staph and can control staph aureus. But but yes, when I'm when I'm just using staph, and I think as you're using staph, I just like to be clear that we're referring to staph aureus, really. And when it comes to eczema, there's there's a big role that that staph aureus has to play. So I think you know when we think of infection, most of us think of a, a like a boil or a pus or oozing or something that is really like a horrible skin issue that we got to go immediately and take care of it and get antibiotics. And and that can be true. And staph aureus can contribute to full-blown skin infections like impetigo or cellulitis. So a whole host of things where I actually think antibiotics are appropriate. But there's an overcolonization that can happen. And that is not a full-blown infection, but it's not a normal level. And Staph aureus lives on our skin. It's okay in small amounts. It's not going to really cause too much of a problem, but it's this in-between state of overcolonization that tends to be plaguing people with eczema. And there was a fascinating study that was done a couple years ago, um, basically assessing for the microbiome of skin and, and what's happening with it with eczema before, during, and after. And what we see is that before you ever see eczema. So, you know, let's, let's talk about like a patch, a flare of skin that's clearly having an eczema flare. Before you see that happen on the skin, the skin microbiome is changing. The diversity of the skin microbiome is plummeting, which in, can include good guy staph epidermidis and bad guy staph aureus starts rising. Then after that has been going on for some amount of time, then you see the compromised skin, the, the redness, the oozing, the itching, whatever kind of issues are going to ensue with the flare. And it is not until the reverse starts happening that the skin clears. So before the skin clears, the staph aureus needs to plummet again and then diversity needs to come back up and only then will the skin clear. So is, there is this overcolonization of staph aureus if there's conditions which allow it to take over and overcolonize the skin microbiome and, and others are the good guys are being crowded out and that needs to be reversed for the flare to um, you know on the skin to to go away as well. So I focus a lot on on that bacteria. And then like I mentioned at the beginning, there's another organism, Malassezia, which is a yeast, which can also be a complicating um, and exacerbating factor in staph. And there's a lot of ways. So I think, you know, people know if they've had, again, a staph infection, there's antibacterial ointment like mupirocin ointment. That's a prescription ointment here in the States. The over-the-counter like Neosporin doesn't really cut it. Um, but there's a lot of herbs and natural things that we can do like supporting that acidic skin pH. Um, like I said, apple cider vinegar, if people can tolerate it, uh, we mix it with water. It's super acidic. Staph aureus hates apple cider vinegar. It hates acidity and it can help kind of rebalance the skin and, uh, lower that load of staph aureus. Then so there's other herbal things that we can do as well. Um, staph aureus also colonizes the nasal cavity. So one problem people with eczema complain about is I don't know, we cleared it and then it came back again, right? And you're in this vicious cycle where you clear it and it's back and you clear it and it's back. And part of it is staff hiding out in the nose. So I always treat the nasal passages as well for the staff 
because if we just treat it on the skin, it's going to come back out later and recolonize the skin. And so we have to get it, yes, on the skin, but also at its source in the nose. Mm. Um, yeah. So, and, and I find I also treat the gut and Staph aureus is, is usually overgrown in the gut of my eczema patients as well. So I say there's three places we have to get it on the skin, in the nose and in the gut. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Facts. I never knew. Um, and just to, just to check on the apple side of vinegar, because I think that's really interesting. We see that a lot in the community as well. Is that something that you recommend you put into the bath or is it more you dilute it with some water and then you tap it on the skin with, with some cotton pads or something? Yeah, both. So you can add it to baths, although, you know, for adults in a big bath, mm. that's going to be a lot of apple cider vinegar. <laughs> so, you know, perhaps a more cost effective way is to put it in a spray bottle. And it, it depends where the skin is at. You know, you can try 50-50, so 50% apple cider vinegar, 50% water. But with really compromised skin, that is going to be pretty painful. Mm. So I tell people, you know, start, you know, at 80-20, 80% 20, 80 water, 20%, or 10-90, or wherever you need to. Now, adults can stand the sting because they can see once they start using the apple cider vinegar, it really moves their skin forward. So they're like, I don't care, I use it all day long, and at first it stung, but they're going to use it anyways. On infants and kids, there's no there's no kind of discussing this with them. So if something stings or hurts, they're not going to use it. And a lot of times you cannot start with any dilution of apple cider vinegar um, with kids. So then I go to tea washes where you can just brew a cup of tea, like green tea, black tea, or herbal tea, and wipe the skin. And also, for some reason, infants and kids don't tend to like the spray bottle. So there's something about that, like, mm. psh, psh, you know, and getting sprayed. <laughs> so I usually do have parents wipe it on them with, as you said, like a cotton ball or something mm. like that. Um, but either of those are really great substances for skin. Um, tea is acidic, it's antimicrobial, and that is usually more tolerated for infants or kids. Or if, you know, some adults, the skin is just so compromised, it's just apple cider vinegar is not going to happen until we actually improve it. Mm, absolutely. Um, and, and would you say for TSW, I mean, obviously, the, the early months of TSW, I mean, really, I mean, I've seen people in awful states up until years, but um, would you recommend trying anything like that in the early stages of TSW or, you know, just let it do its thing? I, yeah, I think tea washes can be helpful. I mean, the problem with early stages of, of TSW and like a no moisture therapy is that the skin is probably going to crack and bleed at some point, And then you get, you kind of open yourself up to infections and if an infection comes in, you're going to have to use something. And a lot of people end up on oral antibiotics or stuff like that. And then that messes with the gut microbiome. And that kind of gets you even further away from, you know, a resolution of all this. So I definitely don't want anyone to end up with a skin infection. And so whatever we can do topically, um, whether it's tea washes or, or very dilute apple cider vinegar, um, we want to avoid that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know it's, you know, it's conceptually hard with no moisture therapy, but you don't want to end up, you have to stop no moisture therapy if you're getting skin infections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. So we, we spoke about gut dysbiosis there. And I think, you know, it, in the community, we, we've seen some studies on probiotics and bits and pieces like that helping with skin, um, but but nothing 100% concrete. And I think it can be really confusing when you go to, say, a health food shop to choose a probiotic because there's so many different variants um, and there's some that are better advertised than others. How Do you have any guidance around probiotics and eczema and TSW or do you think actually there's not enough science there yet? Yeah, so it, it's it's a complicated question. And I think when we talk about probiotics, there's a couple of issues. Um, we we talk about it like it's one organism, you know, or like this, this group of probiotics. But it's kind of like antibiotics, right? There's certain antibiotics that you have to use for certain bacterial overgrowth. And if you just, if we just did a test where we picked like, oh, just pick any antibiotic at any dose and then any skin infection, the results would show, oh, antibiotics don't work. 
right? Because we know enough to know that, no, there's specific antibiotics that address specific bacteria. That's what the job it does. So I think part of the problem with probiotics is that, is that we're just like testing quote unquote probiotics against, you know, diseases and things. And it's much more complicated than that. And, and we're going to need to drill down. But I also think it's, it's more of a Western medicine approach of like, what's that probiotic? What's that strain of probiotic that I can take that's going to magically make all this go away? And it doesn't exist because eczema is a multifactorial complicated disease. Like we won't even deal with like how complicated TSW is. Eczema is complicated. And so my treatment protocols, for example, are quite robust orally and topically. There's a lot of different things that we're trying to address. And it's why I do that gut microbiome testing, because no probiotics is going to fix all those issues in the gut. There is a pattern I see in eczema patients. I call it my eczema gut now. After hundreds of these labs, there's three kind of overgrowths that I see and three lack or problems that basically equate to a leaky gut. But each person with eczema is an individual and there's different things happening in their gut. So I need to treat all of the issues in their gut to rebalance things. And while probiotics can be a good supporting part of a plan, they're never going to go fix all of that dysfunction. Because part of it is you have to kill off the, the pathogenic organisms like Staph aureus. So, you know, it's I, I do prescribe probiotic standard as, as part of my eczema protocols, but um, that alone is never going to fix the problem. And I do prescribe different probiotics to different age groups. There's there's lots of different types of probiotics, as, as we kind of alluded to in the beginning, and um, not every type works for for every person. But yeah, I still think there's this concept of like, okay, what's, what's that one probiotic? It's like that... <laughs> You know, I hear from people, well, I think it's the food. What's the one food I can cut out to make the eczema go away? It's not the, it's not the food. That's not driving it. And it's not going to fix it just to cut out like every food on the planet. So you got to really get at it from this holistic approach and go correct the gut microbiome and the skin microbiome. That's, that's the heart of the problem. Amazing. Thank you. That makes so much sense. So basically individual testing for your individual circumstance and then probiotics to meet those needs. Okay, so just um, sneaking in a final question, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so obviously we're painfully aware that really time is the only thing that heals TSW, but there are sub supporting things that we can do to help our systems whilst we're going through it. What would your recommendations be for that? Yeah, so there there are practitioners out there and whether so there's TCM which is traditional Chinese medicine and they are the herbalists of, you know, kind of a history from Asia. Naturopathic doctors are are herbalists, you know, of a history from Western Europe and North America, and then there's Ayurvedic doctors which are kind of herbalists from, you know, India and that kind of subcontinent. Um, and all of us practice in, in different ways, but we're all using herbs and trying to rebalance the body. And, and I think that's really got to be the goal is trying to support the body to get back to a place of what's known in science as homeostasis, which is balance, right? The body wants to be in balance. And unfortunately with the pharmaceuticals, as we kind of talked about at the beginning, when we go at this whack-a-mole, there was a game when I was growing up called whack-a-mole where one, you know, in the arcade, one little mole would pop up and you'd have to hit him, but then another mole would pop up and you'd have to keep hitting all the moles that are popping up. And when we're using pharmaceuticals, it's like playing whack-a-mole with the symptoms and not addressing the root cause. So I think people need to find find practitioners, whatever their kind of, you know, method that understand that throwing pharmaceuticals and playing, you know, symptom whack-a-mole is not going to ultimately get them anywhere. They need practitioners who are experienced with TSW and who can try to get these underlying root causes in order so that the system can work itself out. And I really hope that, you know, at some point it's acknowledged, uh, not just by like a dermatologist saying, or the eczema foundation saying, yeah, this is a thing, but like, properly acknowledged, given an ICD-10 diagnosis code, dollars put into research so we can understand much better the physiology of what's happening to people. But, you know, until then, all the fundamentals are still there, eating well, eating lots of plants, staying away from sugar and junk food, 
it's hard, but trying to get sleep. So, you know, your practitioner should, should help you with the sleep issues as well. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get exercise or movement in, but, but if you can, you know, and whether that's swimming, cause you can't, you know, go for a walk or a run or a, just, you know, moving your arms with a hand weight, like whatever you can do, all of those kind of fundamental basics of health are still going to help eventually get people through the TSW. Mm-hmm. That was fantastic. Thank you, Judy. Um, so if people want to find out a little bit more about you and potentially work with you, Judy, how can they go about doing that? Yeah. So like I said, um, you know, unfortunately I'm, I'm only licensed naturopathic doctor in California, Oregon, or Washington. So patients have to live in one of those three States because I have to see patients every two to three months for follow-up. We move through different protocols. So I don't allow people to fly in for visits because it, it just is, doesn't really work well, but I just, so that, that site, if you do live in one of those three States is integrative dermatology center.com. I do get emails every day from people outside those states and in other countries. And so I just launched a new site called rootcausedermatology.com. And there are courses on there you can take. Um, I don't have a TSW specific course yet, partially because I'm waiting for some of this really good research to come out, hopefully. But um, I do have a course on eczema and it will really explain and tie together. It's over an hour lecture with slides all of this information, it's an extended version of a presentation that my patients get. And I think it really helps to explain what at least was driving the eczema and how, you know, to understand what was going on there and what perpetuated it for so many years. Um, and then if people, you know, have watched that video and, and are looking for a practitioner who can maybe help guide them through, um, people can contact me and, you know, I'll do my best. There still aren't a lot of practitioners who do this. Um, I'm, I'm hopefully going to launch a course next year to train other practitioners because we, we need people out there using natural things to help people get through this. But mm-hmm. yeah, they can check out uh, Root Cause Dermatology and at least take the eczema course for now. Amazing. Thank you so much. I will add that to the show notes and some of the other resources that we spoke about. And, and Judy, I know you mentioned before some eczema videos. Are they part of the root cause dermatology um, that we uh, can link to or are they something else? Yeah. Yeah. So there are different courses and there's a course on eczema. So okay. um, that would be the most usually appropriate for, for a TSW patient. I mean, there's there's other topics on there. There's a psoriasis course. There's um, seborrheic dermatitis or malesthesia, which we didn't really talk about. Um, but that's in the eczema course as well. Um, hair loss and, and some other courses on there as well. Fantastic. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. I will also link to the other podcasts that you've done uh, with Jennifer. And also you did um, a video with Itzan. So I'll link all of those so everybody can explore the other the other resources that are available with you. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time today. Um, And yeah, glad I got to speak to you. 